0: Hey everyone, it is I, D.B. Spitzer, here with week four of Edgar Allan Poe, The Collected Works, The Raven Edition. So that's volume four. Yeah, that's that's what we got going on on Black Clock Audio Tales. Also, we have, uh, at some point in time, soon, we're going to have Ken Haidt talking about Edgar Allan Poe and some Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans reading some Poe for us. So, here we are. Edgar Allan Poe, and of course, as always, this episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't, 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 uh, don't, don't succumb to to frostbite. Just make sure you wear slippers. It's a good plan. But you know, if you're going outside in subarctic temperatures, wear more than bunny slippers. Just word of advice. BunnySlippers.com. Don't die of it. Exhaustion and exposure. Yeah. Also, found out in clothing, wear cool shirts from your favorite cool cult films of the 80s and 90s and some 70s stuff. Okay. All right. And also, of course, check out Articulate Warbling with Zach Ferguson look for him and dave's underground goat shenanigans on pgttcm.com and you can follow us on instagram you can follow us on facebook and you can follow us on twitter pgttcm.com black clock audio tales just search for those two things and you will find us out in the world, on the internet, all that fun stuff. All right, Edgar Allan Poe, right now. And remember, hey, sorry, <laughs> remember, if you want people to know about it, share it with other people, let other people know about it. Uh, rate, review, give it us the uh, five stars on the Amazon, and uh, not Amazon, the iTunes, or Stitcher, or whatever. Uh, thank you so much.
1: Mystification by Edgar Allan Poe. Slid, if these be your passados and montantes, I'll have none of them. Ned Knowles. The Baron Ritzner von Young was a noble Hungarian family, every member of which, at least as far back into antiquity as any certain records extend, was more or less remarkable for talent of some description. The majority for that species of grotesquerie, in conception of which Teak, a scion of the house, has given a vivid, although by no means the most vivid, exemplifications. My acquaintance with Ritzner commenced at the magnificent Chateau Jung, into which a train of droll adventures, not to be made public, threw a place in his regard and here, with somewhat more difficulty, a partial insight into his mental confirmation. In later days this insight grew more clear, as the intimacy which had at first permitted it became more close, and when, after three years of the character of the Baron Ritzner von Jung, I remember the buzz of curiosity which his advent excited within the college precincts on the night of the 25th of June. I remember still more distinctly that, while he was pronounced by all parties at first sight, the most remarkable man in the world, no person made any attempt at accounting for his opinion. That he was unique appeared so undeniable that it was deemed impertinent to inquire wherein the uniquity consisted. But letting this matter pass for the present, I will merely observe that, From the first moment of his setting foot within the limits of the university, he began to exercise over the habits, manners, persons, purses, and propensities of the whole community which surrounded him, an influence the most extensive and despotic, yet at the same time the most indefinite and altogether unaccountable. Thus the brief period of his residence at the university forms an era in its annals, and is characterized by all classes of people appertaining to it or its dependencies as that very extraordinary epoch forming the domination of the Baron Ritzner von Jung, then of no particular age, by which I mean that it was impossible to form a guess respecting his age by any data personally afforded, he might have been fifteen, or fifty, and he was twenty-one years and seven months." He was by no means a handsome man, perhaps the reverse. The contour of his face was somewhat angular and harsh. His forehead was lofty and very fair, his nose a snub, his eyes large, heavy, glassy, and meaningless. About the mouth there was more to be observed. The lips were gently protruded, and rested the one upon the other after such a fashion that it is impossible to conceive any, even the most complex combination of human features, conveying so entirely and so singly the idea of unmitigated gravity, solemnity and repose. It will be perceived, no doubt, from what I have already said, that the Baron was one of those human anomalies, now and then to be found, who make the science of mystification the study and the business of their lives. For this science a peculiar turn of mind gave him instinctively the cue, while his physical appearance afforded him unusual faculties for carrying his prospects into effect. I quaintly termed the domination of the Baron Ritzner von Jung ever rightly entered into the mystery which overshadowed his character. I truly think that no person at the university, with the exception of myself, ever suspected him to be capable of a joke, verbal or practical. The old bulldog at the garden gate would sooner have been accused, the ghost of Heraclitus, or the wig of the emeritus professor of theology. This too, when it was evident that the most egregious and unpardonable of all conceivable tricks, whimsicalities, and buffooneries, were brought about, if not directly by him, at least plainly through his intermediate agency or connivance. The beauty, if I may call it so, of his art mystifique, lay in that consummate ability resulting from an almost intuitive knowledge of human nature and a most wonderful self-possession, by means of which he never failed to make it appear that the drolleries he was occupied in arose partly in spite, and partly in consequence of the laudable efforts he was making for their prevention, and for the preservation of the good order and dignity of Alma Mater. The deep, poignant, the overwhelming mortification, which upon each such failure of his praiseworthy endeavours would suffuse every lineament of his countenance left not the slightest room for doubt of his sincerity in the bosoms of even his most sceptical companions. The adroitness, too, was no less worthy of observation by which he contrived to shift the sense of the grotesque from the creator to the created, from his own person to the absurdities to which he had given rise in no instance before that of which i speak have i known the habitual mystific escape the natural consequence of his manoeuvres an attachment of the ludicrous to his own character and person continually enveloped in the atmosphere of a whim my friend appeared to live only for the severities of society and not even his own household have for a moment associated other things than those of the rigid and august with the memory of the Baron Ritzner von Jung. The demon of the dolce far niente lay like an incubus upon the university. Nothing at least was done beyond eating, drinking, and making merry. The apartments of the students were converted into so many pothouses, and there was no pot house of them all more famous or more frequented than that of the Baron. Our carousels here were many, and boisterous, and long, and never unfruitful of events. Upon one occasion we had protracted our sitting until nearly daybreak, and an unusual quantity of wine had been drunk. The company consisted of seven or eight individuals, besides the Baron and myself. Most of these were young men of wealth, of high connection, of great family pride, and all alive with an exaggerated sense of honor. They abounded in the most ultra-German opinions, respecting the duello. To these quixotic notions some recent Parisian publications, backed by three or four desperate and fatal conversation, during the greater part of the night, had run wild upon the all-engrossing topic of the times. The baron, who had been unusually silent and abstracted in the earlier portion of the evening, at length seemed to be aroused from his apathy, taking a leading part in the discourse, and dwelt upon the benefits, and more especially upon the beauties of the received code of etiquette, in passages of arms, with an ardour, an eloquence, an impressiveness, and an affectionateness of manner, which elicited the warmest enthusiasm from his hearers in general, and absolutely staggered even myself who well knew him to be at heart a ridiculer of those very points for which he contended, and especially to hold the entire fanfarinade of dueling etiquette in the sovereign contempt which it deserves. Looking around me during a pause in the Baron's discourse, of which my readers may gather some faint idea when I say that it bore resemblance to the fervid, chanting, monotonous, yet musical, sermonic manner of Coleridge, I perceived symptoms of even more than the general interest in the countenance of one of the party. This gentleman, whom I shall call Herman, was an original in every respect, except perhaps in the single particular that he was a very great fool. He contrived to bear, however, among a particular set at the university a reputation for deep metaphysical thinking, and I believe for some logical talent. As a duellist he had acquired who had fallen at his hands, but they were many. He was a man of courage undoubtedly. But it was upon his minute acquaintance with the etiquette of the duello, and the nicety of his sense of honour, that he most especially prided himself. These things were a hobby which he rode to the death. To Ritzner, ever upon the lookout for the grotesque, his peculiarities had for a long time past afforded food for mystification. Of this, however, I was not aware, although in the present instance I saw clearly something of a whimsical nature was upon the tapas with my friend, and that of Hermann was its especial object. As the former proceeded in his discourse, or rather monologue, I perceived the excitement of the latter momently increasing. At length he spoke, offering some objection to a point insisted upon by R., and giving his reasons in detail. To these the baron replied at length, still maintaining his exaggerated tone of sentiment, and concluding in what I thought very bad taste, with a sarcasm and a sneer. The hobby of Hermann now took the bit in his teeth. This I could discern by the studied hair-splitting farrago of his rejoinder. His last words I distinctly remember. Your opinions allow me to say, Baron von Jung, although in the main correct, are in many nice points discreditable to yourself and to the university of which you are a member. In a few respects they are even unworthy of serious refutation. I would say more than this, sir, were it not for the fear of giving you offence here the speaker smiled blandly, I would say, sir, that your opinions are not the opinions to be expected from a gentleman. As Herman completed this equivocal sentence, all eyes were turned upon the Baron. He became pale, then excessively red, then Dropping his pocket-handkerchief stooped to recover it when I caught a glimpse of his countenance. While it could be seen by no one else at the table, it was radiant with the quizzical expression which was its natural character, but which I had never seen it assume except when we were alone together and when he unbent himself freely. In an instant afterward he stood erect, confronting Herman. and so total an alteration of his countenance in so short a period I certainly never saw before. For a moment I even fancied that I had misconceived him, and that he was in sober earnest. He appeared to be stifling with passion, and his face was cadaverously white. For a short time he remained silent, apparently striving to master his emotion. Having at length seemingly succeeded, he reached a decanter which stood near him, saying, as he held it firmly clenched, The language you have thought proper to employ, mynheer Hermann, in addressing yourself to me, is objectionable in so many particulars that I have neither temper nor time for specification." That my opinions, however, are not the opinions to be expected from a gentleman is an observation so directly offensive as to allow me but one line of conduct. Some courtesy, nevertheless, is due to the presence of this company, and to yourself at this moment as my guest. You will pardon me, therefore, if upon this consideration I deviate slightly from the general usage among gentlemen in similar cases of personal affront. You will forgive me for the moderate tax I shall make upon your imagination, and endeavor to consider for an instant the reflection of your person in yonder mirror as the living Mynheer Hermann himself. This being done, there will be no difficulty whatever. I shall discharge this decanter of wine at your image in yonder mirror, and thus fulfill all the spirit, if not the exact letter of resentment, for your insult, while the necessity of physical violence to your real person will be obviated. With these words he hurled the decanter, full of wine, against the mirror which hung directly opposite Herman striking the reflection of his person with great precision, and, of course, shattering the glass into fragments. The whole company at once started to their feet, and, with the exception of myself and Ritzner, took their departure. As Herman went out, the Baron whispered me that I should follow him and make an offer of my services. To this I agreed, not knowing precisely what to make of so ridiculous a piece of business. The duellist accepted my aid with his stiff and ultra-recherche air, and taking my arm led me to his apartment. I could hardly forbear laughing in his face while he proceeded to discuss with the profoundest gravity what he termed the refinedly peculiar character of the insult that he had received. After a tiresome harangue in his ordinary style, he took down from his bookshelves a number of musty volumes on the subject of the duello and entertained me for a long time with their contents, reading aloud and commenting earnestly as he read. I can just remember the titles of some of the works. There were the Ordinance of Philip Lebel on Single Combat, The Theatre of Honour by Favin, and A Treatise on the Permission of Duels by Andiger. He displayed also, with much pomposity, Branterm's Memoirs of Duels, published at Cologne, 1666, in the Types of Elzevir, a precious and unique vellum-paper volume, with a fine margin, and bound by Derome. But he requested my attention particularly, with an air of mysterious sagacity, to a thick octavo written in barbarous Latin by one Hedelin, a Frenchman, and having the quaint title Duelli lex scripta et non alterique. From this he read me one of the drollest chapters in the world, concerning injure per applicationem per constructionem et per se, about half of which he averred was strictly applicable to his own refinedly peculiar case, although not one syllable of the whole matter could I understand for the life of me. Having finished the chapter, he closed the book, and demanded what I thought necessary to be done. I replied that I had entire confidence in his superior delicacy of feeling, and would abide by what he proposed. With this answer he seemed flattered, and sat down to write a note to the baron. It ran thus. "'Sir, my friend M. P. will hand you this note. I find it incumbent upon me to request, at your earliest convenience, an explanation of this evening's occurrences at your chambers. In the event of your declining this request— mr p will be happy to arrange with any friend whom you may appoint the steps preliminary to a meeting with sentiments of perfect respect your most humble servant johann hermann to the baron ritzner van Young. not knowing what better to do i called upon ritzner with this epistle he bowed as i presented it then with a grave countenance motioned me to have a seat Having perused the cartel, he wrote the following reply, which I carried to Herman. Sir, through our common friend, Mr. P., I have received your note of this evening. Upon due reflection, I frankly admit the propriety of the explanation you suggest. This being admitted, I still find great difficulty, owing to the refinedly peculiar nature of our disagreement, and of the personal affront offered on my part in so wording what i have to say by way of an apology as to meet all the minute exigencies and all the variable shadows of the case i have great reliance however on that extreme delicacy of discrimination in matters appertaining to the rules of etiquette for which you have been so long and pre-eminently distinguished With perfect certainty, therefore, of being comprehended, I beg leave, in lieu of offering any sentiments of my own, to refer you to the opinions of Sieur Hedelin, as set forth in the ninth paragraph of the chapter of Injure per applicationem per constructionem et per se, in his Duelli lexcripta et non alliterique. The nicety of your discernment in all the matters here treated will be sufficient. I am assured to convince you that the mere circumstance of me referring you to this admirable passage ought to satisfy your request, as a man of honor, for explanation. With sentiments of profound respect, your most obedient servant, Van Young, the heir, Johann Hermann. Herman commenced the perusal of this epistle with a scowl, which, however, was converted into a smile of the most ludicrous self-complacency as he came to the rigmarole about injure per applicationem per constructionem et per se. Having finished reading, he begged me, with the blandest of all possible smiles, to be seated, while he made reference to the treatise in question. Turning to the passage specified, he read it with great care to himself, then closed the book, and desired me, in my character of confidential acquaintance, to express to the Baron von Young his exalted sense of his chivalrous behaviour, and, in that of second, to assure him that the explanation offered was of the fullest, the most honourable, and the most unequivocally satisfactory nature. Somewhat amazed at all this, I made my retreat to the Baron. He seemed to receive Herman's amicable letter as a matter of course, and, after a few words of general conversation, went to an inner room and brought out the everlasting treatise Duelli lex scripta et non elitorique. He handed me the volume and asked me to look over some portion of it. I did so, but to little purpose not being able to gather the least particle of meaning he then took the book himself and read me a chapter aloud to my surprise what he read proved to be the most horribly absurd account of a duel between two baboons he now explained the mystery Showing the volume, as it appeared prima facie, was written upon the plan of the nonsense verses of Dubartus; That is to say, the language was so ingeniously framed, so as to present to the ear all the outward signs of intelligibility, and even of profundity, while in fact not a shadow of meaning existed. The key to the whole was found in leaving out every second and third word alternately, where there appeared a series of ludicrous quizzes upon a single combat as practiced in modern times. The Baron afterwards informed me that he had purposely thrown the treatise in Herman's way two or three weeks before the adventure, and that he was satisfied from the general tenor of his conversation that he had studied it with deepest attention, and firmly believed it to be a work of unusual merit. Upon this hint, he proceeded. Herman would have died a 1,000 deaths, rather than acknowledge his inability to understand anything and everything in the universe that had ever been written about the duello. LITTLETON BARRY End of Section 8
2: According by Bill Mosley. Diddling Considered as one of the exact sciences By Edgar Allan Poe Hey Diddle Diddle, the Cat and the Fiddle Since the world began, there have been two Jeremys. The one wrote a Jeremiad about usury and was called Jeremy Bentham. He has been much admired by Mr. John Neal and was a great man in a small way. The other gave name to the most important of the exact sciences, and was a great man in a great way, I may say, indeed, in the very greatest of ways. Diddling, or the abstract idea conveyed by the verb to diddle, is sufficiently well understood, yet the fact, the deed, THE THING DIDDLING, IS SOMEWHAT DIFFICULT TO DEFINE. WE MAY GET, HOWEVER, AT A TOLERABLY DISTINCT CONCEPTION OF THE MATTER AT HAND, BY DEFINING, NOT THE THING DIDDLING IN ITSELF, BUT MAN, AS AN ANIMAL THAT DIDDLES. HAD PLATO BUT HIT UPON THIS, HE WOULD HAVE BEEN SPARED THE AFFRONT OF THE PICKED CHICKEN. Very pertinently it was demanded of Plato why a pick-chicken, which was clearly a biped without feathers, was not, according to his own definition, a man. But I am not to be bothered by any similar query. Man is an animal that diddles, and there is no animal that diddles but man. "'It will take an entire hen-coop of picked chickens to get over that. "'What constitutes the essence, the nair, the principle of diddling, "'is, in fact, peculiar to the class of creatures that wear coats and pantaloons. "'A crow thieves, a fox cheats, a weasel outwits, a man diddles. "'To diddle is his destiny. "'Man was made to mourn,' says the poet. But not so. He was made to diddle. This is his aim, his object, his end, and for this reason, when a man's diddled, we say he's done. Diddling, rightly considered, is a compound of which the ingredients are minuteness, interest, perseverance, ingenuity, audacity. NONCHALANCE, ORIGINALITY, IMPERTINENCE, AND GRIN. MINUTENESS. YOUR DIDDLER IS MINUTE. HIS OPERATIONS ARE UPON A SMALL SCALE. HIS BUSINESS IS RETAIL FOR CASH, OR APPROVED PAPER AT SIGHT. SHOULD HE EVER BE TEMPTED INTO MAGNIFICENT SPECULATION, He then at once loses his distinctive features and becomes what we term financier. This latter word conveys the diddling idea in every respect except that of magnitude. A diddler may thus be regarded as a banker in petto, a financial operation as a diddle at Brobdingnag. The one is to the other as Homer to Flaccus as a mastodon to a mouse, as the tail of a comet to that of a pig. Interest Your diddler is guided by self-interest. He scorns to diddle for the mere sake of the diddle. He has an object in view, his pocket, and yours. He regards always the main chance. He looks to number one. You are number two and must look to yourself. PERSEVERANCE Your diddler perseveres. He is not readily discouraged. Should even the banks break, he cares nothing about it. He steadily pursues his end, and Ut canis acorio nunquam absterabitur unto. So he never lets go of his game. INGENUITY Your diddler is ingenious. He has constructiveness large. He understands plot. He invents and circumvents. Were he not Alexander, he would be Diogenes. Were he not a diddler, he would be a maker of patent rat traps, or an angler for trout. AUDACITY Your diddler is audacious. He is a bold man. He carries the war into Africa. He conquers all by assault. He would not fear the daggers of Frey Heron. With a little more prudence, Dick Turpin would have made a good diddler. With a trifle less blarney, Daniel O'Connell. With a pound or two more brains, Charles the Twelfth. Nonchalance. Your diddler is nonchalant. He is not at all nervous. He never had any nerves. He is never seduced into a flurry. He is never put out, unless put out of doors. He is cool, cool as a cucumber. He is calm, calm as a smile from Lady Burry. He is easy, easy as an old glove or the damsels of ancient by Originality Your diddler is original conscientiously so his thoughts are his own he would scorn to employ those of another a stale trick is his aversion he would return a purse i am sure upon discovering that he had obtained it by an unoriginal diddle impertinence your diddler is impertinent he swaggers he sets his arms akimbo He thrusts his hands in his trousers' pockets. He sneers in your face. He treads on your corns. He eats your dinner. He drinks your wine. He borrows your money. He pulls your nose. He kicks your poodle. And he kisses your wife. Grin. Your true diddler winds up all with a grin. But this nobody sees but himself. He grins when his daily work is done, when his allotted labors are accomplished, at night in his own closet, and altogether for his own private entertainment. He goes home, he locks his door, he divests himself of his clothes, he puts out his candle, he gets into bed, he places his head upon the pillow. All this done, and your diddler grins this is no hypothesis it is a matter of course i reason a priori and a diddle would be no diddle without a grin the origin of the diddle is referable to the infancy of the human race perhaps the first diddler was adam at all events we can trace the science back to a very remote period of antiquity the moderns however have brought it to a perfection never dreamed of by our thick-headed progenitors. Without pausing to speak of the old saws, therefore, I shall content myself with a compendious account of some of the more modern instances. A very good diddle is this. A housekeeper, in want of a sofa, for instance, is seen to go in and out of several cabinet warehouses, At length she arrives at one, offering an excellent variety. She is accosted and invited to enter by a polite and voluble individual at the door. She finds a sofa well adapted to her views, and upon inquiring the price, is surprised and delighted to hear a sum named at least twenty percent lower than her expectations. She hastens to make the purchase, gets a bill and receipt, "'leaves her address with a request "'that the article be sent home as speedily as possible, "'and retires amid a profusion of bows "'from the shopkeeper. "'The night arrives, and no sofa. "'A servant is sent to make inquiry about the delay. "'The whole transaction is denied. "'No sofa has been sold, "'no money received, "'except by the diddler, "'who played shopkeeper for the nonce.' Our cabinet warehouses are left entirely unattended, and thus afford every facility for a trick of this kind. Visitors enter, look at furniture, and depart unheeded and unseen. Should anyone wish to purchase, or to inquire the price of an article, a bell is at hand, and this is considered amply sufficient. Again, quite a respectable diddle is this. A well-dressed individual enters a shop, makes a purchase to the value of a dollar, finds, much to his vexation, that he has left his pocketbook in another coat pocket, and so says to the shopkeeper, My dear sir, never mind, just oblige me, will you, by sending the bundle home. But stay, I really believe that I have nothing less than a five-dollar bill, even there. However, you can send four dollars in change with the bundle, you know. "'Very good, sir,' replies the shopkeeper, who entertains at once a lofty opinion of the high-mindedness of his customer. "'I know fellows,' he says to himself, "'who would just have put the goods under their arm and walked off with a promise to call and pay the dollar as they came by in the afternoon.' A boy is sent with the parcel and change. On the route, quite accidentally, he is met by the purchaser who exclaims, "'Ah, this is my bundle, I see. "'I thought you had been home with it long ago. "'Well, go on. "'My wife, Mrs. Trotter, will give you the five dollars. "'I left instructions with her to that effect. "'The change you might as well give to me. "'I shall want some silver for the post office. "'Very good. "'One, two, is this a good quarter? Three, four, quite right. "'Say to Mrs. Trotter that you met me, "'and be sure now and do not loiter on the way.' The boy doesn't loiter at all, but he is a very long time in getting back from his errand, where no lady of the precise name of Mrs. Trotter is to be discovered. He consoles himself, however, that he has not been such a fool as to leave the goods without the money, and, re-entering his shop with a self-satisfied air, feels sensibly hurt and indignant when his master asks him, What has become of the chain?" A very simple diddle, indeed, is this. The captain of a ship, which is about to sail, is presented by an official-looking person with an unusually moderate bill of city charges. Glad to get off so easily, and confused by a hundred duties pressing upon him all at once, he discharges the claim forthwith. In about fifteen minutes, another and less reasonable bill is handed him by one who soon makes it evident that the first collector was a diddler, and the original collection a diddle. And here, too, is a somewhat similar thing. A steamboat is casting loose from the wharf. A traveller, portmanteau in hand, is discovered running toward the wharf at full speed. Suddenly he makes a dead halt, stoops, and picks up something from the ground in a very agitated manner. It is a pocketbook, and... "'Has any gentleman lost a pocketbook?' he cries. "'No one can say that he has exactly lost a pocketbook, "'but a great excitement ensues "'when the treasure trove is found to be of value. "'The boat, however, must not be detained.' "'Time and tide wait for no man,' says the captain. "'For God's sake, stay only a few minutes,' says the finder of the book. "'The true claimant will presently appear.' "'Can't wait,' replies the man in authority cast off there do you hear what am I to do asks the finder in great tribulation I am about to leave the country for some years and I cannot conscientiously retain this large amount in my possession I beg your pardon sir here he addresses a gentleman on shore but you have the air of an honest man will you confer upon me the favor of taking charge of this pocketbook I know I can trust you and of advertising it the notes you see amount to a very considerable sum The owner will, no doubt, insist upon rewarding you for your trouble. Me? No, you. It was you who found the book. Well, if you must have it so. I will take a small reward, just to satisfy your scruples. Let me see. Why, these notes are all hundreds. Bless my soul, a hundred is too much to take. Fifty would be quite enough, I am sure. Cast off there, says the captain. But then I have no change for a hundred, and upon the whole, you had better... "'Cast off there,' says the captain. "'Never mind,' cries the gentleman on shore, "'who has been examining his own pocketbook "'for the last minute or so. "'Never mind, I can fix it. "'Here is a fifty on the bank of North America. "'Throw the book.' "'And the over-conscientious finder "'takes the fifty with marked reluctance "'and throws the gentleman the book, as desired, "'while the steamboat fumes and fizzes on her way. "'In about half an hour after her departure, "'the large amount is seen to be a counterfeit presentment, and the whole thing a capital diddle. A bold diddle is this. A camp meeting, or something similar, is to be held at a certain spot which is accessible only by means of a free bridge. A diddler stations himself upon this bridge, respectfully informs all passers-by of the new county law, which establishes a toll of one cent for foot passenger's Two for horses and donkeys, and so forth and so forth. "'Some grumble, but all submit, "'and the diddler goes home a wealthier man "'by some fifty or sixty dollars, well earned. "'This taking a toll from a great crowd of people "'is an excessively troublesome thing. "'A neat diddle is this. "'A friend holds one of the diddler's promises to pay, "'filled up and signed in due form, upon the ordinary blanks printed in red ink. The diddler purchases one or two dozen of these blanks, and every day dips one of them in his soup, makes his dog jump for it, and finally gives it to him as a bon bouche. The note arriving at maturity, the diddler, with the diddler's dog, calls upon the friend, and the promise to pay is made the topic of discussion. The friend produces it from his escritoire, "'and is in the act of reaching it to the diddler "'when up jumps the diddler's dog "'and devours it forthwith. "'The diddler is not only surprised, "'but vexed and incensed at the absurd behavior of his dog, "'and expresses his entire readiness "'to cancel the obligation at any moment "'when the evidence of the obligation shall be forthcoming. "'A very mean diddle is this. "'A lady is insulted in the street by a diddler's accomplice.' The diddler himself flies to her assistance and, giving his friend a comfortable thrashing, insists upon attending the lady to her own door. He bows with his hand upon his heart and most respectfully bids her adieu. She entreats him, as her deliverer, to walk in and be introduced to her big brother and her papa. With a sigh, he declines to do so. Is there no way, then, sir? she murmurs. In which I may be permitted to testify my gratitude. "'Why, yes, madam, there is. "'Will you be kind enough to lend me a couple of shillings?' "'In the first excitement of the moment "'the lady decides upon fainting outright. "'Upon second thought, however, "'she opens her purse-strings and delivers the specie. "'Now this, I say, is a diddle minute, "'but one entire moiety of the sum borrowed has to be paid to the gentleman who had the trouble of performing the insult, and who had then to stand still and be thrashed for performing it. Rather a small but still a scientific diddle is this. The diddler approaches the bar of a tavern and demands a couple of twists of tobacco. These are handed to him when, having slightly examined them, he says, "'I don't much like this tobacco. "'Here, take it back, and give me a glass of brandy and water in its place. "'The brandy and water is furnished and imbibed, "'and the diddler makes his way to the door. "'But the voice of the tavern-keeper arrests him. "'I believe, sir, you have forgotten to pay for your brandy and water. "'Pay for my brandy and water? "'Didn't I give you the tobacco for the brandy and water? "'What more would you have?' "'But, sir, if you please, I don't remember that you paid me for the tobacco.' "'What do you mean by that, you scoundrel? Didn't I give you back your tobacco? "'Isn't that your tobacco lying there? Do you expect me to pay for what I did not take?' "'But, sir,' says the publican, now rather at a loss, what to say. "'But, sir!' but me no but, sir,' interrupts the diddler, apparently in very high dudgeon, "'and slamming the door after him as he makes his escape. "But me no but, sir, and none of your tricks upon travellers. Here again is a very clever diddler, of which the simplicity is not its least recommendation. A purse, or pocketbook, being really lost, the loser inserts in one of the daily papers of a large city a fully descriptive advertisement, whereupon our diddler copies the facts of this advertisement with a change of heading, of general phraseology, and address. The original, for instance, is long and verbose. is headed a pocketbook lost, and requires the treasure when found to be left at Number 1 Tom Street. A copy is brief, and being headed with lost only indicates Number 2 Dick or Number 3 Harry Street as the locality at which the owner may be seen. Moreover it is inserted in at least five or six of the daily papers of the day, while in point of time it makes its appearance only a few hours after the original. Should it be read by the loser of the purse, he would hardly suspect it to have any reference to his own misfortune. But, of course, the chances are five or six to one that the finder will repair to the address given by the diddler rather than to that pointed out by the rightful proprietor. The former pays the reward, pockets the treasure, and decamps. Quite an analogous diddle is this. A lady of ton has dropped somewhere in the street a diamond ring of very unusual value. For its recovery she offers some forty or fifty dollars reward, giving in her advertisement a very minute description of the gem and of its settings, and declaring that, on its restoration at number so-and-so in such-and-such avenue, the reward would be paid instanter, without a single question being asked during the lady's absence from home a day or two afterwards a ring is heard at the door of number so-and-so in such-and-such avenue a servant appears the lady of the house is asked for and is declared to be out at which astounding information the visitor expresses the most poignant regret his business is of importance and concerns the lady herself in fact he had the good fortune to find her diamond ring but perhaps it would be as well that he should call again. By no means, says the servant, and by no means, says the lady's sister and the lady's sister in law, who are summoned forthwith. The ring is clamorously identified, the reward is paid, and the finder nearly thrust out of doors. The lady returns and expresses some little dissatisfaction with her sister and sister in law because they happen to have paid forty or fifty dollars or a facsimile of her diamond ring, a facsimile made out of real pinchbeck and unquestionable paste. But there is really no end to diddling, so there would be none to this essay, were I even to hint at half the variations or inflections of which this science is susceptible. I must bring this paper perforce to a conclusion and this i cannot do better than by a summary notice of a very decent but rather elaborate diddle of which our own city was made the theatre not very long ago and which was subsequently repeated with success in other still more verdant localities of the union a middle-aged gentleman arrives in town from parts unknown he is remarkably precise cautious staid and deliberate in his demeanor. His dress is scrupulously neat but plain, unostentatious. He wears a white cravat, an ample waistcoat made with an eye to comfort alone, thick-soled cozy-looking shoes and pantaloons without straps. He has the whole air, in fact, of your well-to-do, sober-sided, exact, and respectable man of business par excellence, one of the stern and outwardly hard, internally soft sort of people that we see in the crack-high comedies, fellows whose words are so many bonds, and who are noted for giving away guineas in charity with the one hand, while in the way of mere bargain they exact the uttermost fraction of a farthing with the other. "'He makes much ado before he can get suited with a boarding-house. "'He dislikes children. "'He has been accustomed to quiet. "'His habits are methodical, "'and then he would prefer getting into a private "'and respectable small family, piously inclined. "'Terms, however, are no object. "'Only he must insist upon settling his bill "'on the first of every month. "'It is now the second and begs his landlady, when he finally obtains one to his mind, not on any account to forget his instructions upon this point, but to send in a bill and receipt precisely at ten o'clock on the first day of every month, and under no circumstances to put it off to the second. These arrangements made, our man of business rents an office in a reputable rather than a fashionable quarter of the town, there is nothing he more despises than pretense. Where there is much show, he says, there is seldom anything very solid behind, an observation which so profoundly impresses his landlady's fancy that she makes a pencil memorandum of it forthwith in her great family Bible on the broad margin of the Proverbs of Solomon. The next step is to advertise, after some such fashion as this, in the principal business six pennies of the city the pennies are issued as not respectable and as demanding payment for all advertisements in advance our man of business holds it as a point of his faith that work should never be paid for until done wanted the advertisers being about to commence extensive business operations in this city will require the services of three or four intelligent and competent clerks to whom a liberal salary will be paid the very best recommendations not so much for capacity as for integrity will be expected indeed as the duties to be performed involve high responsibilities and large amounts of money must necessarily pass through the hands of those engaged it is deemed advisable to demand a deposit of fifty dollars from each clerk employed No person need apply, therefore, who is not prepared to leave this sum in the possession of the advertisers and who cannot furnish the most satisfactory testimonials of morality. Young gentlemen, piously inclined, will be preferred. Application should be made between the hours of 10 and 11 a.m. and 4 and 5 p.m. of Messrs. Boggs, Hogs, Logs, Frogs, and Company. Number one ten, Dog Street. By the thirty first day of the month, this advertisement has brought to the office of Messrs Boggs, Hogs, Logs, Frogs, and Company, some fifteen or twenty young gentlemen piously inclined. But our man of business is in no hurry to conclude a contract with any. No man of business is ever precipitate, and it is not until the most rigid catechism in respect to the piety of each young gentleman's inclination that his services are engaged and his fifty dollars receipted for, just by way of proper precaution, on the part of the respectable firm of Bogs, Hogs, Logs, Frogs and Company. On the morning of the first day of the next month, the landlady does not present her bill according to promise, a piece of neglect for which the comfortable head of the house ending in ogs, would no doubt have chided her severely could he have been prevailed upon to remain in town a day or two for that purpose. As it is, the constables have had a sad time of it, running hither and thither, and all they can do is to declare the man of business most emphatically a hen nee high. by which some persons imagine them to imply that, in fact, he is N-E-I by which again the very classical phrase non est inventus is supposed to be understood. In the meantime the young gentlemen, one and all, are somewhat less piously inclined than before, while the landlady purchases a shilling's worth of the Indian rubber and very carefully obliterates the pencil memorandum that some fool has made in her great family Bible on the broad margin of the Proverbs of Solomon. End of section 9. Recording by Bill Mosley, Lano County, Texas, USA.
3: The Angel of the Art by Edgar Allan Poe It was a chilly November afternoon. I had just consummated an unusually hearty dinner, of which the dyspeptic trough formed not the least important item, and was sitting alone in the dining room with my feet upon the fender, and at my elbow a small table, which I had rolled up to the fire, and upon which were some apologies for dessert, with some miscellaneous bottles of wine, spirit, and liqueur. In the morning I had been reading Glover's Leonides, Wilkie's Epigoniad, Lamartine's Pilgrimage, Barlow's Columbiad, Tuckerman's Sicily, and Griswold's Curiosities. I am willing to confess, therefore, that I now felt a little stupid. I made an effort to arouse myself by aid of frequent Lafitte, and all failing, I betook myself to a stray newspaper, in despair. Having carefully perused the column of Houses to Let, and the column of Dogs Lost, and then the two columns of Wives and Apprentices Run Away, I attacked with great resolution the editorial matter, and reading it from beginning to end, without understanding a syllable, conceived the possibility of it being Chinese and so reread read it from the end to the beginning but with no more satisfactory results i was about throwing away in disgust this folio of four pages happy work which not even poets criticize when i felt my attention somewhat aroused by the paragraph which follows the avenues to death are numerous and strange a london paper mentions the decease of a person from a singular course he was playing at puff the dart which is played with a long needle inserted in some worsted and blown at a target through a tin tube he placed the needle at the wrong end of the tube, and drawing his breath strongly to puff the dart forward with force drew the needle into his throat it entered the lungs and in a few days killed him upon seeing this i fell into a great rage without exactly knowing why this thing i exclaimed is a contemptible falsehood, a poor hoax, the lees of the invention of some pitiable penny-a-liner, of some wretched concocter of accidents in Coquenya. These fellows, knowing the extravagant gullibility of the age, set their wits to work in the imagination of improbable possibilities, of odd accidents, as they term them, but to a reflecting intellect like mine. I added in parenthesis, putting my forefinger unconsciously to the side of my nose, to a contemplative understanding such as myself possesses. It seems evidence at once that the marvellous increase of late in these odd accidents is by far the oddest accident of all. For my own part, I intend to believe nothing henceforward that has anything of the singular about it. My God! Then what a fool you bees for that replied one of the most remarkable voices i ever heard at first i took it for a rumbling in my ears such as a man sometimes experiences when getting very drunk but upon second thought i considered the sound as more nearly resembling that which proceeds from an empty barrel beaten with a big stick and in fact this i should have concluded it to be but for the articulation of the syllables and words I am by no means naturally nervous and the very few glasses of lafitte which i had sipped served to embolden me a little so that i felt nothing of trepidation but merely uplifted my eyes with a leisurely movement and looked carefully around the room for the intruder i could not however perceive anyone at all
4: Humph!
3: resumed the voice as i continued my survey
4: you must be so drunk as the pig, then for not see me as I sit here at you," side
3: Hereupon I bethought me of looking immediately before my nose, and there, sure enough, confronting me at the table sat a personage nondescript, although not altogether indescribable. His body was a wine pipe or a rum punch or something of that character, and had a truly Falstaffian air. In his nether extremity were inserted two kegs, which seemed to answer all the purposes of legs. For arms, there dangled from the upper portion of the carcass two tolerably long bottles with the necks outward for hands. All the head that I saw the monster possessed of was one of those Hessian canteens which resemble a large snuff box with a hole in the middle of the lid. This canteen, with a funnel on its top like a cavalier cap slouched over the eyes, was set on the edge upon the puncheon, with the hole toward myself, and through this hole, which seemed puckered up like the mouth of a very precise old maid, the creature was emitting certain rumbling and grumbling noises which he evidently intended for intelligible talk.
4: "'I say,' said he, "'you must be drunk as the pig, for zit there and not zee me zit here. And I say, do you must be bigger fall as the goose.' For to disbelieve what is print in the print, tis the truth that it is a reward of it. "'Who are you,
3: pray?' said I with much dignity, although somewhat puzzled. "'How did you get here, and what is it you're talking about?'
4: "'As for how I come, dear,' replied the figure, "'that is none of your business. "'And as for what I be talking about, "'I be talking about what I think proper.' And as for ORB, why that is the very thing I come to here for to let you see for yourself.
3: You are a drunken vagabond, said I, and I shall ring the bell and order my footman to kick you into the street. <laughs> said the fellow.
4: Ho ho ho! That you can't do. Can't do? said I. What do you mean? I can't do what? Ring the bell he
3: replied, attempting a grin with his little villainous mouth. Upon this, I made an effort to get up, in order to put my threat into execution, but the ruffian just reached across the table very deliberately, and hitting me a tap on the forehead with the neck of one of the long bottles, knocked me back into the armchair from which I had half arisen. I was utterly astounded, and for a moment was quite at a loss what to do. In the meantime, he continued his talk. "'You see?'
4: said he. It is the best for zit still, and now you shall know who I be. Look at me, see? I am the angel of the odd. And odd enough too,
3: I ventured to reply, but I was always under the impression that an angel had wings.
4: The wing!
3: he cried, highly
4: incensed. What I pay do mit the wing? my god do you take me for a chicken no oh no
3: i replied much alarmed you are no chicken certainly not
4: well then sit still and behave yourself or i'll wrap you again with my fist it is the chicken up the wing and the owl up the wing and the imp up the wing and the head devil up the wing the angel aber not the wing and I am the angel of the odd And your business with me at present is is My business ejaculated the thing. Why what a low bred poopy you must be for to ask a gentleman under an angel about his business
3: this language was rather more than I could bear, even from an angel. So, plucking up courage, I seized a salt-cellar which lay within reach and hurled it at the head of the intruder. Either he dodged, however, or my aim was inaccurate, for all I accomplished was the demolition of the crystal which protected the dial of the clock upon the mantelpiece. As for the angel, he evinced his sense of my assault by giving me two or three hard consecutive raps upon the forehead as before these reduced me at once to submission and i'm always ashamed to confess that either through pain or vexation there came a few tears into my eyes
4: Mein god said the angel of the odd apparently much softened at my distress Mein god the man is either very drunk or very sorry you must not drink it so strong you must put the water in the vine here drink this like a good fellow and don't cry now don't hereupon the angel of the odd
3: replenished my goblet which was about a third full of port with a colorless fluid that he poured from one of his hand bottles I observed that these bottles had labels about their necks and that these labels were inscribed Kirschenwasser the considerate kindness of the angel mollified me in no little measure Aided by the water with which he diluted my port more than once I at length regained sufficient temper to listen to his very Extraordinary discourse. I cannot pretend to recount all that he told me But I gleaned from what he said that he was the genius who presided over the Contre of mankind and whose business it was to bring about the odd accidents which are continually astonishing the skeptic once or twice upon my venturing to express my total incredulity in respect to his pretensions he grew very angry indeed so that at length i considered it the wiser policy to say nothing at all and let him have his own way he talked on therefore at great length while i merely leaned back in my chair with my eyes shut and amused myself with munching raisins and the stems about the room but by and by The angel suddenly construed this behaviour of mine into contempt. He arose in a terrible passion, slouched his funnel down over his eyes, swore a vast oath, uttered a threat of some character which I did not precisely comprehend, and finally made me a low bow and departed, wishing me, in the language of the archbishop in Gilblas,
4: beaucoup de bonheur et un peu plus de bon sens.
3: His departure afforded me relief. The very few glasses of lafitte that i had sipped had the effect of rendering me drowsy and i felt inclined to take a nap of some 15 or 20 minutes as is my custom after dinner at six i had an appointment of consequence which it was quite indispensable that i should keep the policy of insurance for my dwelling house had expired the day before And some dispute having arisen, it was agreed that at six I should meet the board of directors of the company and settle the terms of a renewal. Glancing upward at the clock on the mantelpiece, for I felt too drowsy to take out my watch, I had the pleasure to find that I had still twenty five minutes to spare. It was half past five. I could easily walk to the insurance office in five minutes, and my usual siestas had never been known to exceed five and twenty. I felt sufficiently safe therefore and composed myself to my slumbers forthwith having completed them to my satisfaction i again looked towards the timepiece and was half inclined to believe in the possibility of odd accidents when i found that instead of my ordinary fifteen or twenty minutes i had been dozing only three for it still wanted seven and twenty of the appointed hour i betook myself again to my nap and at length a second time awoke Went to my utter amazement, it still wanted twenty seven minutes of six. I jumped up to examine the clock and found that it had ceased running. My watch informed me that it was half past seven, and of course, having slept two hours, I was too late for my appointment. It will make no difference, I said. I can call at the office in the morning and apologize. In the meantime, what can be the matter with the clock? Upon examining it, I discovered that one of the raisin stems, which I had been philipping about the room during the discourse of the Angel of the Odd, had flown through the fractured crystal, and lodging singularly enough in the keyhole, with an end projecting outward, had thus arrested the revolution of the minute hand. Ah, said I, I see how it is. This thing speaks for itself. A natural accident, such as will happen now and then. I gave the matter no further consideration, and at my usual hour retired to bed. Here, having placed a candle upon a reading stand at the bedhead, and having made an attempt to peruse some pages of the uh, Omnipresence of the Deity, I unfortunately fell asleep in less than twenty seconds, leaving the light burning as it was. My dreams were terrifically disturbed by visions of the Angel of the Odd. Methought he stood at the foot of the couch. "'drew aside the curtains, and in the hollow, detestable tones of a rum puncheon "'menaced me with the bitterest vengeance for the contempt with which I had treated him. "'He concluded a long harangue by taking off his funnel cap, "'inserting the tube into my gullet, and thus deluging me with an ocean of cursion "'which he poured in a continuous flood from one of the long-necked bottles that stood him, instead of an arm.' My agony was at length insufferable, and I awoke just in time to perceive that a rat had run off with the lighted candle from the stand, but not in season to prevent his making his escape with it through the hole. Very soon a strong, suffocating odour assailed my nostrils. The house, I clearly perceived, was on fire. In a few minutes the blaze broke forth with violence, and in an incredibly brief period the entire building was wrapped in flames. All egress from my chamber except through a window was cut off the crowd however quickly procured and raised a long ladder by means of this i was descending rapidly and in apparent safety when a huge hog about whose rotund stomach and indeed about whose whole air and physiognomy there was something which reminded me of the angel of the odd when this hog i say which hitherto had been quietly slumbering in the mud took it suddenly into his head that his left shoulder needed scratching and could find no more convenient rubbing post than that afforded by the foot of the ladder. In an instant I was precipitated, and had the misfortune to fracture my arm. This accident, with the loss of my insurance, and with the more serious loss of my hair, the whole of which had been singed off by the fire, predisposed me to serious impressions, so that finally I made up my mind to take a wife." There was a rich widow, disconsolate for the loss of her seventh husband, and to her wounded spirit I offered the balm of my vows. She yielded a reluctant consent to my prayers. I knelt at her feet in gratitude and adoration. She blushed and bowed her luxuriant tresses into close contact with those supplied me, temporarily, by Grand Jean. I know not how the entanglement took place, but so it was. I arose with a shining pate, wigless; she in disdain and wrath half-buried in alien hair. Thus ended my hopes of the widow by an accident, which could not have been anticipated, to be sure, but which the natural sequence of events had brought about. Without despairing, however, I undertook the siege of a less implacable heart. The fates were again propitious, for a brief period, but again a trivial incident interfered. Meeting my betrothed in an avenue thronged with the elite of the city, I was hastening to greet her with one of my best-considered bows, when a small particle of some foreign matter lodging in the corner of my eye rendered me, for the moment, completely blind. Before I could recover my sight, the lady of my love had disappeared, irreparably affronted at what she chose to consider my premeditated rudeness in passing her by ungreeted. While I stood bewildered at the suddenness of this accident, which might have happened nevertheless to anyone under the sun, and while I still continued incapable of sight, I was accosted by the Angel of the Odd, who proffered me his aid with a civility which I had no reason to expect. He examined my disordered eye with much gentleness and skill, informed me that I had a drop in it, and, whatever a drop was, took it out and afforded me relief. I now considered it high time to die since fortune had so determined to persecute me and accordingly made my way to the nearest river here divesting myself of my clothes for there is no reason why we cannot die as we were born I threw myself headlong into the current the sole witness of my fate being a solitary crow that had been seduced into the eating of brandy saturated corn and so had staggered away from his fellows no sooner had I entered the water than this bird took it into his head to fly away with the most indispensable portion of my apparel postponing therefore for the present my suicidal design I just slipped my nether extremities into the sleeves of my coat and betook myself to the pursuit of the felon with all the nimbleness which the case required and its circumstances would admit but my evil destiny attended me still As i ran at full speed with my nose up in the atmosphere and intent only upon the poloina of my property i suddenly perceived that my feet rested no longer upon terra firma the fact is i had thrown myself over a precipice and should have inevitably have been dashed to pieces but for my good fortune in grasping the end of a long guide rope which depended from a passing balloon As soon as I sufficiently recovered my senses to comprehend the terrific predicament in which I stood, or rather hung, I exerted all the power of my lungs to make that predicament known to the aeronaut overhead. But for a long time I exerted myself in vain. Either the fool could not, or the villain would not perceive me. Meantime, the machine rapidly soared, while my strength even more rapidly failed. I was soon upon the point of resigning myself to my fate and dropping quietly into the sea, when my spirits were suddenly revived by hearing a hollow voice from above, which seemed to be lazily humming an opera air. (laughs)
4: Looking
3: up, I perceived the Angel of the Odd. He was leaning with his arms folded over the rim of the car, and with a pipe in his mouth at which he puffed leisurely. Seemed to be upon excellent terms with himself and the universe. I was too much exhausted to speak, so I merely regarded him with an imploring air. For several minutes, although he looked at me full in the face, he said nothing. At length, removing carefully his meerschaum from the right to the left corner of his mouth, he condescended to speak.
4: Who pay you? he asked. And what their toful you be do there? To this piece of impudence, cruelty, and affection,
3: I could reply only by ejaculating the monosyllable,
4: "Help!" Help!" echoed the ruffian. Not I. There is their bottle. Help yourself and be damned.
3: With these words, he let fall a heavy bottle of kirschenwasser, which, dropping precisely upon the crown of my head caused me to imagine that my brains were entirely knocked out impressed with this idea I was about to relinquish my hold and give up the ghost with a good grace when I was arrested by the cry of the angel who bade me hold on
4: hold on he said don't be in theory don't will you take the other bottle Or have you begot sober yet, and come to your senses?
3: I made haste hereupon to nod my head twice. Once in the negative, meaning thereby that I would prefer not taking the other bottle at present, and once in the affirmative, intending thus to imply that I was sober, and had positively come to my senses. By this means I somewhat softened the angel.
4: And you believe, then?
3: he inquired.
4: At the last, you believe then in the possibility of the odd? I again nodded my
3: head in assent.
4: And you have believed in me, the angel of the odd?
3: I nodded again.
4: And you acknowledge that you be the blind, drunk, and the fool? I nodded once more put your right hand into your left hand preachers pocket ten in token of your full submission unto the angel of the earth
3: this thing for very obvious reasons i found it quite impossible to do in the first place my left arm had been broken in my fall from the ladder and therefore had i let go my hold with the right hand I must have let go altogether in the second place, I could have no breeches until I came across the crow. I was therefore obliged much to my regret to shake my head in the negative, intending thus to give the angel to understand that I found it inconvenient just at the moment to comply with his very reasonable demand. No sooner, however, had I ceased shaking my head than
4: go to their Teufel! then roared
3: the angel of the odd in pronouncing these words he drew a sharp knife across the guide rope by which i was suspended and as we then happened to be precisely over my own house which during my peregrinations had been handsomely rebuilt it so occurred that i tumbled headlong down the ample chimney and lit upon the dining room hearth upon coming to my senses for the fall had thoroughly stunned me i found it about four o'clock in the morning i lay outstretched where i have fallen from the balloon my head grovelled in the ashes of an extinguished fire while my feet reposed upon the wreck of a small table overthrown and amid the fragments of a miscellaneous dessert intermingled with a newspaper some broken glass and shattered bottles and an empty jug of the she dam thus revenged himself the angel of the odd end of section 10 Read by Joseph Finkberg.